I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. Have you ever looked for a pack of pan scourers or a bottle of kitchen cleaner in the cupboard under the sink and just can't find them? You know they're there. Well, you're almost certain they are there, and yet inside the cupboard it's too dark, too busy, or your arm just can't stretch far enough. This is where household chores meet the cutting edge in space research. The search for planets beyond the control of our sun, or exoplanets, is very similar to the hunt for a bottle of bleach in the kitchen cupboard. These planets are many light years away, the light from their suns is so faint that we can hardly see them, and when we listen for them, there's all sorts of other noise we have to cut through. And yet NASA's Kepler mission last year made some remarkable discoveries. Remember those images in the newspaper of the Star Wars world Tatooine, the planet with two suns? That's Kepler-16b, 200 light-years from us Earthlings. Or maybe you remember the planet said to be in the Goldilocks zone of its own solar system. Not too hot, not too cold, Kepler-22b could comprise the perfect conditions for life. In this podcast, as you've probably guessed, I'm on the hunt for exoplanets. So I have to start with Kepler, which is a pretty special little spacecraft. It has provided us with uh, um, really, really a lot of new planets, uh, uh, especially very small one compared to the uh, maybe more massive one that were found in the past. And uh, on top of that, uh, Kepler has announced more than 1,000 planetary candidates, which are at the moment are waiting for confirmation. That's Dr. Giovanna Tinetti, who's one of the exoplanet searchers, hunting through a treasure trove of planets found by Kepler. Kepler is also providing, again, a lot of statistics and is telling us, for instance, uh, that um, uh, exoplanets seem to be much more common than we even thought uh, at the beginning. And so there is this flood of planets uh, that we are, uh, you know, receiving. Uh, so it, it looks like uh, this number is uh, increasing exponentially. So that's, that's really, really very interesting and very exciting. But Giovanna's work is different to that of Kepler. I went along to the Department of Physics and Astronomy at University College London to ask her how. Your work doesn't focus on what Kepler's doing. I understand that you're looking at atmosphere in different planets. So can you tell us what the difference is between how Kepler goes about its mission and how you go about your mission? Uh, well, Kepler is uh, a mission that is supposed to detect a new planet, so really find a new planet uh, uh, in the neighborhood of our own sun, so basic orbiting star, which are relatively uh, close to our own sun. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm very interested clearly in, uh, in knowing about new planets uh, being found, don't get me wrong, but what I'm particularly interested in, in trying to understand the composition, what they're made of, and really try to characterize them. And uh, at the moment, we have been able to do this kind of um, characterization through measurements uh, for planets which are much more massive than on Earth. In particular, we did a lot of measurement uh, using Spitzer Space Telescope or Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, more recently, even from the ground, looking at gas giant planet more similar to our own Jupiter, but located quite close to the star, and so relatively hot. And uh, so all this work has been quite successful, again, for uh, planets which are a bit far away from the kind of uh, uh, habitable uh, planet idea <laughs> that clearly everybody's interested in. But clearly, the, this kind of techniques are, are improving. And uh, the idea is that, uh, you know, uh, we really want to be able to repeat this kind of measurements of planets which are much more similar to our own Earth. And the fact there are mission like Kepler 
which are providing us uh, with, you know, a flood of new planets uh, and uh, new statistics uh, is exactly what we need uh, then to, to do the next step and really try uh, to characterize better these, these, these new objects. So Kepler is sent off to find these faraway planets, but Giovanna and co. are tasked with characterizing them. They do this by looking at the molecules that make up the planet's atmospheres. These planets are located very far away from us. So when I say neighborhood, still we're talking about, uh, you know, usually several tens of light years away. So clearly we can't go there and do some kind of in situ measurements like we're doing for the planets in our own solar system. That would be great, but it's impossible. So the only way we can characterize these faraway objects is basically to look at the light that is coming to us and uh, play a bit of tricks. Uh, so basically we are looking at planets that usually uh, have an orbit uh, for which at a certain point the planet can uh, pass in front of the star. Uh, and this technique is actually the same one used by Kepler to find new one. But what we want to do more with respect to Kepler is to um, look at this light uh, at different wavelengths. And uh, in particular, we want to be look at, at the light, especially in the infrared, and uh, looking basically at this light, how this light is behaving in a different way as a function of wavelength, uh, so what we call in jargon spectra, we can basically uh, understand uh, what kind of molecules are present uh, in these atmospheres of this very far away planet. This process is known as spectroscopy, which is where Professor Jonathan Tennyson steps in. He's the expert, so I'll let him explain how you can use spectroscopy to learn about exoplanets. Spectroscopy is basically a quantum mechanical phenomenon. So atoms and molecules have discrete energy levels and they can absorb light so they jump from one level to another. That gives every molecule a characteristic fingerprint, a bit like a barcode if you like to think of it. And it's why we can actually know more about say what stars the other side of the universe are made of than we know that about what the centre of the Earth is made of, because we get the light from these stars and we look at it very in very detailed according to its colour, and we can then identify what that star is made of, what the atoms and the molecules are. Now, the issue that I've been dealing with is that a lot of these extrasolar planets we look at are very hot, and that means that the molecules in them are very hot, and that makes their spectra very complicated and difficult to model with laboratory spectra taken at temperatures of the normal laboratory room temperature. So to give you an example, the molecule I've worried a lot about is water. Water is very well studied because you may have noticed there's a lot of it in our own atmosphere. So for modeling, say, climate change in the Earth's atmosphere, we have a database that everyone uses. It has about 100,000 water lines in it, individual transitions, colors where the water absorbs light. We have done a calculation for very hot water, and that has 500 million transitions in it. And we can check that calculation by looking at what is done in the lab on Earth, but no one actually wants to measure 500 million transitions because they would still be doing it sometime way centuries in the future. How does that apply to space and the exoplanetary research exactly? You know, looking at the water that you've got over on the planet Earth and looking far into the stars? Okay, so we've passed, in a sense, the era of discovery in exoplanets. So the first exoplanet was discovered sometime in the 1990s, and people have been getting more and more of them. And within the last year, I think it's now become generally accepted that virtually every star has planets going around it. So we know they're there, and the thing you really want to know now is what they're made of, and of course, eventually, is anyone living on any of them? 
So what we want to do is characterize them. And the spectroscopy is the main tool for characterizing anything. So you need to look at the light very carefully to try and work out what the planet is made of, or in particular what you see is what the atmosphere of the planet is made of. It's pretty difficult at the moment to, if you have a solid planet to work out what the surface is made of. Now, this is not easy at all because the planet goes around a, a star. The star is very bright. You essentially can't see the planet. So how do you see something which is invisible against a very bright background? And this is actually what Giovanna Tinetti, who I believe you've already heard from, really pioneered, was using the idea that certain planets transit in front of their star. That is, they pass in front of their star as you look at them from Earth. So by looking at these planets which transit in front of their star, you can look at the amount of light you get from the star before the planet transits and then as it transits, and actually also as the planet goes behind the star. And if you do this and you break the light up into different colours, you get a very elementary spectrum. At least so far, they're very elementary. We're hoping with time that we'll be able to make these spectra much more, uh, much higher resolution, see the colours much more clearly. But that has already allowed us to characterise some molecular species in the atmospheres of these planets. The team use various telescopes dotted around the world to make new observations of the atmospheres. But at these distances, it's very difficult to be precise. Imagine standing at one end of a football pitch and trying to study a pea held by your friend at the other end. You can't touch it or hold it, you can barely see it. By looking at the light bounced off the pea, spectroscopy can deliver buckets of data. But what do the planet hunters do with it all? Well, they hand it to a PhD student. Here's Ingo Waldman, who's just finishing his PhD on Giovanna's team. I'm essentially a statistician and I look at um, very, something very boring, the different properties of noise in an instrument to, to actually um, analyse the data. So, yeah, statistics is my thing and people, people should be more excited about it. But I understand why people generally don't care. <laughs> Ingo reduces and analyses the data to produce an exoplanetary spectrum, which Giovanna then analyses. And... Tell us a little bit about this exoplanetary spectrum. What is it? What does it look like? What do you do with the numbers? Oh, it's just a few wiggly lines, really. But um, essentially what it, what it shows is that um, the, the radius of the planet seems to be larger or smaller for different wavelengths, which is due to some of the light going through the um, atmosphere of those exoplanets when the exoplanet is transiting its host star. And some of those molecules in those atmospheres will absorb or emit at certain wavelengths. So you, so it appears as if you have a bigger radius. So those are those wiggly lines. That's the spectrum. And looking at different wavelengths, we can specifically probe for certain molecules such as water or methane or CO2. There is one reward for wading through all this data. He gets to visit the telescopes that collect it. They're all over the place. Um, we need to have some quite big beasts for this sort of work. So the, the smallest class of telescopes we can usually go for is three, three and a half meters. Um, so we usually go for the biggest ones, the eight meter class, which is um, in Chile, for example, the very large telescope, the VLT. Um, but also in La Palma on the Canary Islands, in Hawaii, Mauna Kea. Um, wherever we have um, eight meter sized telescopes and usually we go for the chilly ones. Did you choose this field so that you could go to uh, far away exciting places? Yes, entirely and utterly. 
Um, it was in my first year undergrad when I had to decide between quantum physics and astrophysics. And I spoke to my tutor. My tutor told me to use to do to go for astrophysics just because I get to play with the bigger tools. It was a 30 second decision that changed my life. And I quite like it. I get to go to cool places on European taxpayers' money, essentially. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about your experiences at the VLT in, in Chile. What's it like to go there? Oh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Everything is catered for. You go down to Santiago and then you're being flown up to the Atacama Desert, which is essentially the driest place on our planet. Um, it's quite close to the sea, actually, to the Pacific. It's only 20, 30 miles inwards that you have the, clo the driest conditions imaginable. Um, but it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. There is no microbial life at all. In fact, all we have there are engineers and astronomers. Um, that's as good as it gets. Why is it important to have these telescopes in these particular locations? Well, it's um, important because um, a low air humidity allows you to um, look at certain wavelengths that you can't usually do that for. So it's important to go as high up and as dry as possible so you have the maximum transmissivity throughout your atmosphere. What do they do at the VLT in Chile to make sure that you and your colleagues can actually stay there and live there and uh, do your work. Oh, it's actually quite fantastic. They they build themselves a small palace. The the VLT guest house is actually. Have you seen Quantum of Solace? It's um, the one that blows up at the end. That's the VLT guest house. And um, to to combat the air humidity issue, the very low air humidity, what they've basically done is they built two artificial oases inside the building with including swimming pools, sauna and and all the sorts of stuff. And yeah, palm trees inside a building is amazing. So now we just have this image of astronomers sitting there underneath palm trees uh, next to the pool. Yeah, essentially that's it. But I mean they have to they have to feature quite a lot of amenities there because there is essentially nothing outside and you can't really go outside for too long. If you go out for 30, 40 minutes, you see, you feel your skin drying up. And a lot of people who stay there for two weeks or so have bleeding palms, for example. Um, it gets quite rough and it gets quite cold and hot in the, in, during the day. So you can't really go outside. So you have to have everything inside. But it's nice. But the problem with the telescopes launched to date, whether the VLT or Kepler or even the dear old Hubble, is that none of them were built with the work of Giovanna and Jonathan in mind. That's very inconvenient, and it's why they need statisticians like Ingo to find ways through the data. You're limited very much by the quality of the instrumentation one uses, and so far this has largely been done by space, and the space instrumentation was up there and has been used because it was there, not that it's been designed to do this. And of course, you can get better instrumentation from Earth, but if you want to look at Earth, you can't do it, look at another Earth, you can't do it looking through our own atmosphere because all you see is our own atmosphere. Some of the exoplanet spectra that have been recorded have been taken using the Hubble Space Telescope, which we all know is a very powerful but a very generic telescope. You have to look at the passes of the planets at different wavelengths in different times. You can't stare for long periods because Hubble's not designed that way. It's not got the perfect wavelength coverage. It's very good at visible wavelength light that we see with our own eyes. It's not so good at the heat-bearing wavelength of infrared where molecules have their characteristic signatures. So it's there and we use it, but it's not perfect for the job. So the scientists are working on the next generation of space telescope and are planning a rather special mission. 
known as ECHO. ECHO is a multinational, multi-European bid to launch a spacecraft. Its exoplanet characterization observatory is what it's called, and the idea is, is what it says is that you can use it actually to get a really lot of information about extrasolar planets. And the main aim of ECHO is that it should stare for a long time at individual planets and catch all the light at the same time. One of the problems if you use this transit technique is that you're relying on the star itself being stable. So if you want to look at lots of different colours, but you have to look at them at each colour at a time, but the, plat- the star changes in the meantime, then actually you're in a mess, so you don't really know what it is. So the idea of ECHO is that you'll look at all the colours at the same time, over a wide range of them, and then you can really get a snapshot of that planet and what's going on. And the person who's leading the ECHO project? Giovanna Tinetti. We really want to be able to observe several exoplanets and we want to be able to look at objects which are uh, quite gaseous and very massive but also objects which are relatively small and also much colder so uh, much more similar to our own Earth. We want to be able to look at planets orbiting different type of stars, colder than the sun, hotter than the sun. And through all these uh, um, statistics of, of planets, so uh, comparing what they're made of, why they are as they are, try to really start to classify this new planet and really um, be able to um, um, understand the process of formation and evolution of planets around different type of stars and through that make a comparison with our own solar system and understand if you are unique or rare or just very common out there, which you just don't know yet. So this is really exciting stuff, an entire space mission dedicated to understanding faraway planets. It's basically Star Trek, only from a lab in central London, rather than a starship in space. Here's Giovanna on the mission status. We are at the moment in what is called the phase zero. Uh, that's how the European Space Agency is, is calling it, which means that we are, we are already being selected out of about 60 other proposals. And now a lot of effort and, uh, uh, is being uh, put by the European Space Agency or by some other um, countries and scientists in order to understand how, how best we can plan uh, this, uh, this, this mission. And then at the end of 2013, again, we will know if we are the, the, the winner among the other uh, three other uh, competitors. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if we are the winner, then I guess it's just a matter of really building the instrument. So we're talking about about 10 years away to the launch. So you have to wait almost a full two years to find out whether or not you've won and it will be going ahead and then perhaps a, a decade in total before we actually see anything. You're playing the long game here, aren't you? But this is the game of space missions in general. You can't really build a space mission in less than 10 years. I know that, you know, for the for the common perception, it looks like an insanely long amount of time. But if, from going to the phase where the mission is planned to the phase where industry are really finishing it and is ready to launch, 10 years is actually a snapshot, I can tell you. So it's really the needed time. And it's like that for any other space mission. So, yeah, uh, the downside, I guess, is that you really need to be able to, to, to see through time and making sure that your mission is still... Uh, very interesting and exciting in 10 years' time. This is the challenge that all space missions have. 
And the technology is changing so much in that time, presumably, as well. So how do you make sure that the mission keeps pace with the technological change so that you don't keep after going back to the drawing board all the time? Well, clearly you can't go in back to the drawing board. I mean, uh, you need to, to, to freeze your mission, your space mission, I mean, through steps, uh, which are, you know, a mandatory step. Um, and this has been done clearly for other missions in the past. Um, I would say that uh, the kind of technique that ECHO will use is a technique which is very solid. I mean, the technique of looking at transit is not something that, you know, we have invented on the paper right now and we don't know if we were successful or not. Kepler is providing fantastic results using exactly the kind of technique we will use. It's just repeating the same measurement of different wavelengths. And we have already been doing this kind of exercise with space missions like Hubble and Spitzer underground, which are not really dedicated. And so for all sorts of reasons, they're doing very, very well, but clearly not at the level we would need uh, for going to the accuracy, uh, again, needed to uh, to look at uh, um, a more uh, habitable kind of environment. We, we need an extra bit, and the extra bit is clearly building an entire instrument to 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 give you the the stability that you need, and you know the um, the perfect matching of all the instrument that you know it gives you the um, the extra quality needed. We might need to wait 10 years until we see ECHO launch. That's if it gets the green light from the European Space Agency. And a decade is a long time for the public to sustain its interest in the search for exoplanets, which, as Giovanna notes, is on the rise. The interest uh, in uh, exosolar planets has really increased exponentially as much as the number of exoplanets discovered. Uh, and I would imagine it's because, it, it, first of all, it's a very new field. The first exosolar planet, the first planet around another star, was just discovered in 1995. So, you know, it's, it's, it's literally um, a very little time ago. And so clearly before 1995, uh, people were uh, clearly predicting exosolar planets. But, you know, one thing is to have the theory, another thing is to have the experiment, and another thing, again, is to have an experiment that is so successful. When I started to work in this field, very few planets were detected and discovered, and uh, it seems really a bit like a bet, you know, it could go very well or very wrong. And uh, it's quite amazing that now we're touching almost 1,000 new planets since 1995. So it gives you the breadth uh, and the novelty of this field. And so clearly, um, it's, it's, it's very exciting for a scientist, but I would imagine for everybody, understanding that you have all these alien words out there. And I would imagine that everybody has the curiosity of trying to understand how they're made of, I mean, what kind of planets and environment we can think of i mean so i guess that basically that that maybe is the you know is the excitement do you think that we will find life elsewhere in the universe i am personally pretty convinced there is life elsewhere in the universe i hope to live to see it found uh you don't you can never predict the future on these things uh but i think it would be very exciting if we can find it i think the sort of life we're likely to find is not people doing radio interviews, it's going to be amoebas or maybe primitive dinosaur-type life forms or whatever, and we'll see it from various signatures to do with the effect that having life on a planet has in their atmosphere. I don't think I will live to see any sort of communication with other sort of life. What is it that convinces you that we will find life, though? 
simply the statistics, there are a huge number of planets out there, and I'd be very surprised if our one is so unique that even if there are very special conditions that have created life on Earth, a number of very accidental things that have allowed us to flourish here, there are just so many planets out there that I would be really astounded if we were the only planet that these conditions had occurred on. Well, you heard the man. The cleaning sprays and dishcloths are almost certainly there at the back of the cupboard. It's just up to folks like Giovanna, Jonathan and Ingo to reach as far as they can into the dark to find them. We can be even more sure that the inhabitants of any exoplanets have a better way of organising their kitchen cupboards. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can read the transcript, click on the related resources and hear more podcasts from the Science and Environment faculty at podacademy.org.